My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Scott Price. All too often, the blood and sweat that make struggle happen are remembered by those who spilled them, but are erased from the public memory, the social memory, that the rest of us constitute, learn from, and share. However, though they remain too few and too poorly resourced, there are some wonderful examples of participants in and supporters of movements doing historical work to challenge that erasure. One very useful technique for doing this, and one that I've made use of myself, is that of oral history, grounding historical accounts of movements in the reminiscences of participants in those movements. Scott Price is working with the Oral History Center at the University of Winnipeg and with Local 832 of the United Food and Commercial Workers. He's using oral history techniques to recover crucial stories from the history of the labor movement, including, importantly, around the growth of feminism within the labor movement, in Manitoba. He talks with me about that project and about the importance of oral history as a way to ensure that the movements that have shaped our world are not forgotten. I spoke with him by Skype to phone from Winnipeg. I'm Scott Price. I just recently graduated from the University of Winnipeg with an honors degree in history. I ended up taking a course with Professor Nolan Riley, a labor historian, on oral history. And then from there, I started doing more work and having more interest in oral history. The project itself started around spring of last year. The union went to Professor Nolan Riley and asked that they wanted to do this history project. He came to me and said, well, Scott, this union wants to do this history. Why don't you head up the research and I'll advise and help you along with it? So I jumped at the chance. Another big reason of why this project is happening is the Oral History Center at the University of Winnipeg. A lot of the resources that we have at the Oral History Center, we have a nice interview room, digital recorders, all sorts of different software, editing software. The project is essentially a partnership between UFCW Local 832 and the Oral History Center. United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 832 in Manitoba, they're a private sector union and it's a pretty broad set of people that they represent. It's a lot of retail people, so Safeway, Superstores, there's some Sobeys, different places like that. And then there's also meatpacking plants, what's a bit left of some brewery sort of places shipping things, wholesale, warehouses, I think even some security firms as well. They represent about 15,000 people in Manitoba, which is a pretty big chunk of workers from Winnipeg all over southern Manitoba all the way to the north. They also have an office in Thompson. It was originally created in 1979, United Food and Commercial Workers, Basically, internationally, it was created with a merger between the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union and the Retail Clerks Union. And so then through Canada and the United States, all these unions came together as UFCW. It took another decade or so to get everyone in Winnipeg and all the workers in Manitoba from the Meatpacker Union and the Retail Union under one roof. 
So tell me a bit about your method. What's involved in doing oral history? What we do at the Oral History Center is life story interviews. I do a pre-interview with the person I'm going to be interviewing. It's an informal thing. I take a piece of paper or a notepad and just jot down notes. And we just sort of chat for maybe a half hour to an hour. And I just sort of ask them about their life and their time in the union and that kind of stuff. And explain to them the process and how we do things. And then we go into the formal interview. In the formal interview, I have a preamble and explain what we're doing, talking about the project and that kind of stuff. And then basically I leave it up to the person being interviewed of where they want to take it. My first question is always the same. I say, well, tell me your life story, and you can begin wherever you feel that is appropriate. And basically, uh, just let them go. Some people do their, their life story in 10 minutes. Others take an hour. So it, it depends. And then from there, I might have some other questions and stuff, and then there's follow-up sessions from the first session where I say, okay, well, you know, in, in the first interview, you talked about this incident. Could you explain this more? And, you know, what did you mean by this? It's in some ways time-consuming, but it's better, I think, because you get a real nice richness. It's pretty amazing because people always say, oh, well, I guess you can interview me, but I don't think I have anything to say. And it's always those people who always have the most to say. A lot of the people I've interviewed are just really great storytellers. It's really quite amazing to listen to. So there's a richness that comes out of leaving it very open so that you always have more possibilities and more follow-up interviews and more questions to ask of someone rather than in more of like a journalistic fashion where it's kind of more closed-ended questions, then you get the real richness of the history. The first bit of the project, the union, people on the executive and some other key people within the local came up with a list of about 25 people. They said, okay, these are people that we think would be good to start with. So these are a lot of, you know, ex-presidents, ex-executive members, or just people who were like reps for, you know, 30 years. And then through those interviews, people will say, oh, well, you know, you should talk to such and such a person. So it, it kind of built that way. And then the other thing, just this last spring, they had their 75th anniversary convention where we showed a bunch of our research. And then we also had a display of the history. Through the weekend, they had the Shop Steward Conference and the Health and Safety Conference. So people from there were coming through the history display, and then I would talk to them, and I jotted down a whole bunch of names. We've done about 40 interviews. We're still looking for more people because there's still quite a bit to uncover. At this point, it is still a bit open-ended. We're going to go next week and present what we've done over this last spring and summer and fall to the people at 8.32. So we'll see what they say and then how much more they want us to do. So I'm hoping that they'll want to cover more of the local. I'm assuming they would, but we'll wait and see. So going back to the research process, once you've got the interview, you've done the interview, you've gone back and done the follow-ups, what do you do with the material then? Of course, there's going through the interview again and analyzing it saying, okay, like these, these are the stories that come up, these are the different narratives, and then keeping track of that. Obvious example would be strikes, but it could also be issues internally within the union, perhaps. It could be wider political things, for instance, with different political parties, like with the NDP or something like that. So identifying that and keeping track of those things. Obviously, to transcription, transcribing the interviews is very, very important. 
And then from those, more recently, what we've been doing is we've put together two documentaries and we're putting together another two. They're in the process of being put together. One is on the Safeway strike here in Winnipeg in 1978. The other one is on the merger in 1979. And the two that I am currently working on is one on the Superstar strike in 87 and then one on the growth of feminism within the local. And so we take different clips from the interviews and put together a narrative that makes sense. And then we also use other archival photos and things to fill in a visual component. So it could be from old newsletters, it could be from newspapers or other archives that we can find, different things that maybe people have kept over the years, different pictures and stuff like that. Those are so far what we've been doing. Personally, one thing I'd really like to do with the project is do listening sessions with the wider membership. So taking some stories, you don't have to be long stories, maybe at most five minutes each, and then just organizing these listening sessions where people will come in and listen to stories about maybe a specific strike or about a specific issue, and then use those stories from this history project to start discussion and reflection with the membership today to get them sort of, okay, you know, so you're a Safeway worker today. These stories about these Safeway workers in 78 are there similarities here that you're seeing? What sticks out in your mind to sort of get the membership more involved? That's something I would like to do. We haven't started that yet, but I hope to start that in the new year. You know, it's great if you have all this information, but if it kind of just sits in an archive, it doesn't really do anyone a heck of a lot of good. I think the other key part here is taking these histories and this information we have and to get the membership involved in it and to get them to realize like, oh yeah, like I work at Superstore and the stuff that those people were fighting against in 1987 are the same issues I'm dealing with now. Wow, that's amazing. So they kind of get a sense of historical place. Yeah, these are issues and this is kind of what the local does. These sorts of fights for better working conditions, for that kind of stuff. So the thing that caught my attention initially to want to, to interview you was that you recently did a presentation about the piece that you mentioned just now about the growth of feminism in this particular local. Tell me a little bit about what you found in that area and how it relates to the broader growth of labor feminism in those years. When we were doing the first phase of the project, like I said, with those 25 or so people, there was a lot of women that we interviewed. A lot of them came out of the retail side. There was also one woman who came out of the meatpacking local, which was a really fascinating perspective to have. So we also started on top of these strikes and some of these other things that I assumed that I would be talking about. There was also this big thing with feminism that started to really come up that was very noticeable in a lot of the narratives. And so that's sort of how it was like, oh, you know, this is a huge issue and we should really address this in some way because it's a huge part of the local. I mean, you have women that I interviewed in the local who, you know, they got involved in the local through a strike or something like that. And then because of that strike, they got involved. They ultimately became union reps. And then when they came into the union at the time, this is starting around the late 70s, early 80s, it was definitely an old boys club and them battling that and just trying to change the culture there and saying, well, no, you can't do it this way or, you know, you have to have more than one woman on the executive board, all these sorts of things. 
So it was very interesting to hear about them talk about, I mean, sure, they had to fight the employer, the bosses, as unions will have to, but they also had this internal fight within the union of getting the men in the local to see how discriminatory the structure of the union was and battling that. One way where it also came up was one of the documentaries we did was on, like I said before, the Safeway strike in 78. And it was very interesting because the president of the local at the time, Bernard Kristoff, talked about the strike in 78 in terms of, okay, well, we had these issues of price and wage control that was put in by the Trudeau government at the time. And so there's all this issue with inflation and wages and all this kind of stuff. He put it in economic terms. And it was very interesting because another one of the women that I interviewed who came up in the union after that Safeway strike, and then she became the first female head of the Manitoba Federation of Labor, she said, well, no, that's not what the strike was about. The Safeway strike was about equal pay for women. That's why I went out on strike. I wouldn't have went out for strike over price and wage control. Like That wouldn't have spurred me on. It was no, it was the issue that women were getting paid less in the retail stores than the men were. That was what the issue was. So we also saw that and we're like, okay, that's an interesting thing about the differences of how they interpreted what the strike was about, what the issues were to them or what they remembered about it. So it was also that that drove home that, yeah, we we need to talk about that issue. And also because, you know, like I said, one of the people that we interviewed, Susan Hart Koabala, she became the first female head of the Manitoba Federation of Labor, as well as a couple other women who also became very involved in other labor bodies, either the Winnipeg Labor Council or Manitoba Federation of Labor or what have you. The other thing, too, with these activists who started in the late 70s, another big issue with them was the pro-choice issue, the fight over abortion. And some really great stories about how, I guess it was in 84, it was at a convention in Brandon where there was huge wranglings that went on, but ultimately they got the MFL to adopt a pro-choice stance, which they are to this day. But them just talking about the lead-up to that and the fight that they had to do to get the MFL to do it, because a lot of labor leaders, a lot of them were men, either maybe their own personal view is that they didn't agree with abortion, but a lot of them just didn't even want to deal with the issue. They just said, you know what, it's almost like too much heat. We don't even want to deal with this. And their argument was, well, it's not a union issue. And the women said, yes, it is a union issue. The choice of whether or not a woman can have a child is a pretty big union issue. So it was that kind of internal struggle that went on, which was also just fascinating to hear the stories around that, the sort of organizing that they did. And then through all those things, they developed, you know, a women's network through UFCW that goes across North America. And they have women's conferences and all this kind of stuff. If you look at the local today, and I think even UFCW in general, you see a lot of women involved with the local. I mean, even if you look at UFCW's executive, a lot of it's women, especially for me in the younger generation. Like I was born in 87, grew up in the 90s. That kind of stuff, I just assume is just a natural way that things are, right? But there was this huge fight that women had to take on that was really great to document. Tell me a bit more about how the internal gender struggles within the local played out in terms of the things that women had to do to change how things worked in the local. Darlene Jevitz, one of the women that we interviewed, she said that it was just women realizing that you have as much power as they think that you do. So basically it was a group of women who said, you know what, there's a lot of these things that need to be changed 
and they just made a lot of noise and a lot of trouble about it. And it really caused some labor leaders and some people a lot of grief. And it was basically sort of scaring them because it was at one point where they were wrangling over these issues and they went to the then head of the Manitoba Federation of Labor and then came into his office one after another and just gave him an earful saying, no, you don't order us around. You can't tell us what not to do. You can't tell us we can't be doing these things that we should be doing anyways. There's going to be blood on the convention floor if you don't change this stuff, if you don't start listening to what we have to say. And so them realizing their power as women within the local. I should also point out, too, that they say that there's a lot of men in the local who also supported them a lot, too, and, and the wider labor movement. Within that fight internally, like the MFL, there was a lot of people who, as the women who I interviewed said, who it's either they didn't really want to deal with it or they just didn't really see how discriminatory the structure really was. So it was them just trying to push and say, well, no, do you not realize what this does? Do you not realize how disempowering this is for women? And to get a lot of men to realize that you have to have these women that are active in the local, they can't just be dues payers. They can be so much more to the wider labor movement. And then just convincing the men of that and then for them to see the importance of that. I mean, a lot of it came to a head with the whole pro-choice thing. It happened in 84, so you have the whole Henry Morgenthaler thing going on at the same time because uh, he was trying to open up a clinic in Winnipeg in the 80s. So he had all this happening. So it was quite a watershed for a lot of women because a lot of this stuff, you know, the pro-choice stance and then also a lot of things where they mandated in the bylaws that, you know, you have to have so many women on the executive board and, you know, you should have some women reps as well and all these sorts of things really created this bigger space for women to get involved where it probably wasn't really there before. It broadened the scope for involvement for women in the labor movement and, and specifically in, in UFCW. One of the interesting things in, uh, and I don't know if you've seen this, Judy Rebick's oral histories of the women's movement in Canada is that compared to the United States, there were deeper relationships between the women's movement in the trade unions and the broader women's movement. Is that something that the women you interviewed talked about, about connections with the broader women's movement? Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we talked about that quite a bit there was different feminist and pro-choice groups. And then what a lot of the women here in Manitoba did is they created their own committee called, I think it was Labor People for Choice. And so they communicate with one another through those sorts of things. And they all knew one another and organized together. Like Judy Rebick talks about, there was great connections and the solidarity between feminists outside of the labor movement and feminists within the labor movement. That's certainly something that I saw with the research. What are a few of the other key themes that have emerged after the 40 or so interviews that you've done? One thing, and it's a perennial question, really, as anyone who's studied the labor history in Canada, the relationship between unions and the New Democratic Party. Like I said, it's a perennial one. Sometimes that issue can get pretty contentious. I think as well, the other thing that I find interesting is internal questions about how the union is run and what they do. That's another issue that has come up. A lot of people, at least in their opinion, they see a decline in some ways of the membership getting really active. That's another question that's come up is, is there this decline of activism within the local? Why is that happening and how can we solve that problem? How can we foster more activism within the local? 
And have the folks that you've interviewed with, of course, their own decades of experience to reflect on, have they come up with any good suggestions? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. Some of them, you know, I, I think I've been retired for a while. The way they talk about it is a slightly more detached way. So it, it, it's interesting how different people frame it. The one thing that I thought was really interesting is one woman said, the problem is, is that when she came up in the 80s and even in the 90s, we used to create activists. You know, yeah, sure, you're a shop steward, whatever, but we would create activism. And it wasn't just labor issues. It was, no, there's these issues with peace issues, there's issues with feminism, there's issues with racism, all that kind of stuff. And as she said, she said, you know, we don't really do that as much anymore. So we just have to figure out how we create more activists. Coming up in the 80s, you were turned on to all these issues, and it was just sort of what you did. You couldn't avoid those issues. If you're going to be a labor activist, those issues also had to be in your mind as well. You can't just talk about the stuff happening in the workplace, right? As far as suggestions, I think a lot of people are sort of, they realize what the problem is. They're just not, there's no consensus I can see of, exactly what they want to do or how to solve that. I I think they they kind of see that it would behoove them to create this more hotbed of activism, but a lot of them are still like not entirely sure exactly how you go about it. I mean, maybe it could be because they never really sat back and thought about how it was done in the 80s or why those things happened. Why do you think oral history is a useful approach when you're dealing with histories of labor, histories of social movements? The term that is often used with oral history is democratizing history, giving a voice and an impetus for people to put themselves into the history book and to get their stories out there. That's what oral history was about when it really started to come into academia in the 70s, to get working people, to get what their stories were. And so I think using it as a tool is really great because the way I'm doing the interviews, and I think how a lot of other people do oral history interviews, like I said, you get this richness from the stories. You know, you get people really reflecting and really thinking about their past and what it meant and why these things happened. And so you get really great insights, I think, for the newer generation to learn from. And I think that's the great thing about it especially for people who are thinking about social change and who want to do that kind of stuff, there's a lot to learn from the past and from what past activists did and what they learned. So the oral history really allows that rich tapestry to come out. I don't know if other mediums and other ways would really allow for that. So I think that's why it's important, specifically for um, activists and people thinking about social change. You sometimes run into people who do other kinds of history that are sometimes a bit dubious about oral history and who emphasize, you know, memory is fallible and they question, I think, its reliability. How do you respond to some of those critical takes on oral history that come from within the history profession itself? (laughs) It's kind of funny that some of that stuff persists because I think there's other oral historians in the past, like Paul Thompson, Portelli as well, who, if you read their work, especially Portelli, his work, he very eloquently dispels a lot of that because he says, well, memory is fallible. Well, sure, you know, it's just this one person's perspective. Okay, but if you're going through what's in the archives, a lot of it will be government's perspective, right, about who gets into the archives. 
So to say that the traditional historical sources, as they were, aren't already biased is kind of ludicrous because they already obviously are, right? Like if you're going to say, oh, well, you interviewed a bunch of Indigenous elders, but their memory is fallible or whatever, but you're going to hold up reports from Department of Indian Affairs officials as the documents for the history? Like, that's ridiculous. And I think even, like I talked about before in, like, memories of strikes and what people remember, the interesting thing there is that, again, there's differences in how people remember it, but in this case, neither of them are necessarily wrong. It's just the interesting question for you as an historian is why did this person put emphasis on this and why did this person put emphasis on something else? Then you get into some interesting historical things. And even if they are wrong, and there's cases of this, the other interesting question is, okay, but why did they remember it in such a wrong way? And then through that, you can come to some very interesting conclusions about events and about people who were there. The interviews are like any other historical source. Like if I'm going to take something from government documents, I'm not going to take it as this is the account. Just like I'm not going to say that this one person's account of this strike is the account of the strike. I guess to a certain degree, I mean, you also have to be careful because you do have to say, well, this is the picture of what we have, what happened, and these are the different narratives of it and interpretations of it. And what does that say about this event? What does that say about these people? You mentioned listening sessions earlier in the interview. What are other possibilities, other ideas for making use of this research in a way that it engages people and that it contributes to social recovery of memory as opposed to just sitting on a shelf somewhere. One of the other impetuses of why the union decided to do the history was that UFCW Local 32 has a training center here in Winnipeg. They give health and safety, first aid, computer training, English as a second language, if people want to get their high school equivalents and all that kind of stuff. But another thing they do is they do a labor history course. It's kind of a broad history course about labor in Canada. But the thing was, was they said their members who took the course always said, okay, great, what about the history of 832? I want to know the history of my local. They got that consistently. So I think that was another reason why they wanted to do the history project, and that's another thing I would also like to help in some way in developing is this course on 832 itself that they will teach at their training center. So I think that would be another way to engage the membership about their history. I've been trying to think about other ways you can get the history out, but I think right now those are the two that I've thought that would be good starting points. Also, giving the membership a course on the history of their local, I think would also go a long way into them when they're paying their dues or where they're going to meetings. You know, they have this sense of historical place of, you know, I'm a member of Local 832 and this is what the local means. This is what the local has fought for. You have been listening to my interview with Scott Price about his work using oral history to recover important aspects of the history of the labor movement and of feminist struggle within the labor movement in the province of Manitoba. To find out more about the work of the Oral History Centre at the University of Winnipeg, go to oralhistorycenter.ca. To find out more about UFCW Local 832, go to ufcw832.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.